as you'll recall if you've been following along that um, up until now this entire chapter which has been speaking about what Allah called the Fathan Mubin this manifest clear victory it's centered around the event of the Muslims of Rasulullah seeing the dream in, in Medina uh, and in him coming with over 1400 Muslims towards Mecca as we mentioned that they were stopped about anywhere from 20 to 60 kilometers outside of Mecca the Quraysh found out that they were coming for Umrah they prevented them and in that event uh, basically we looked at the peace treaty of Hudaybiyah this was in the sixth year after the Hijrah and there were a lot of things that Allah had been speaking about in the Quran up until this uh, point until verses 24 and 25 uh, a lot of the grief that the Muslims felt because they had wanted to go to Umrah obviously and who would not want to go to Umrah for the house of Allah and they were prevented so Allah gave them consolation Allah revealed Sakina tranquility to their hearts Allah promised them victories that they could never imagine in their lives they were given the spoils of war and eventually as we know that they were eventually given the Fath of Khaybar they were given the victory at Mecca in the eighth year after the Hijrah and the victory at the Battle of Hunayn. So the two verses we want to look at today will continue in that same light. And Allah is actually uh, giving us much more detail. Now the, uh, the two verses we'll look at, verses 24 and 25, the Arabic themselves are very succinct, they're very brief. And so I've had to add a lot into the uh, translation on screen. So again, you'll realize that whatever is in uh, italics is an explanation and we'll go through that so we can better understand what was going on at the time of Rasulullah. So we begin with verse number 24, where Allah says, it's a very short verse actually, but again the translation uh, has to be explained. So Allah says that it is He, meaning Allah, who withheld their hands, meaning that of the polytheists, of the Meccan polytheists, from you and the Muslim, the, the, you, the Muslims, and your hands from them, the polytheist Meccans, within the heart of Mecca through the peace treaty of Hudaybiyah, after He caused you to overcome them through the terms and conditions of the treaty. And Allah is ever seeing and knowing of what you do. So keep in mind, brothers and sisters, that what's happening at this time when this verse is being revealed in the sixth year after the Hijrah, Muslims are camped outside of Mecca, again, anywhere from 20 to 60 kilometers away. Over 1,400 of them with Rasulullah. As we had mentioned early on, Uthman, Uthman ibn al-Affan, who became the later on the third, the third Khalifa, he was actually sent by the Prophet to Mecca because he had strong family ties with the Meccans. So the Prophet had him dispatched to uh, discuss and the fact that they were coming for Umrah, they weren't coming to war or fight. He was delayed. Then now we had the, the, the Bayat of Ridwan, the, the, the Pledge of Allegiance to the Prophet under the tree. And then the Meccans, they release Uthman, he comes back, but they send uh, one of the representatives to negotiate the terms of agreement with Rasulullah. And what Allah is talking about here is that it is through that peace tree that basically He was able to prevent, as Allah says, that it is He, Allah, who drew the hands of the Meccans from you, that through the treaty of Hudaybiyah, the, the Mushrikeen were basically prevented from attacking the Muslims. 
and vice versa, that the Muslims were also prevented from having to fight or war against the people of Mecca. And this will become a bit more clear in the next verse, verse 25. But basically Allah is saying that through that treaty, you were actually prevented from a lot of harm and hardship that would have come to you, that he'll talk about in the next verse. Because you keep in mind, as we've been saying, that when you go to Umrah or Hajj, we know it's haram to carry weapons. It's forbidden to carry any form of weaponry. And these thousand Muslims had only, they had swords or daggers or knives, but that was for defensive purposes as they're traveling from Medina to Mecca. So they didn't, they weren't ready for a war. They weren't having with armaments and, you know, everything to fight a battle. So if the Meccans were to attack them, Right. There is a strong chance that the Muslims would have lost because you don't have any way to defend themselves. So Allah is saying that it is actually through the blessing of Allah that He prevented the polytheists, the mushrikeen, from attacking the Muslims and also from the, the Muslims having to retaliate and defend themselves against the mushrikeen. And then as Allah says that after He caused you to overcome them, uh, having the victory by overcoming them. And that is a reference to the peace treaty. As we've been mentioning, that there are many times in our lives, brothers and sisters, that we will have to lose the uh, battle to win the war. Right? We'll have to sometimes give in in our own lives. We see this at home with our family, with our spouse, you know, with our children, that we can't always win small minor arguments and we shouldn't always go for the minor because we have to look at the big picture. So this is what the Prophet was doing, this is what the Qur'an was giving us as Muslims, the psychology of how we should work, that we may have to sometimes submit, give in to the powers that be, for the greater good because we can regroup, we can re-energize uh, you know, re ourselves, and then when we launch that final assault, then we will, with the help of Allah, be victorious. And as Allah mentions that, وَكَانَ اللَّهُ بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ بَصِيرًا That Allah sees the Muslims, he knows that they were wanting to go to Umrah, they brought their animals for sacrifice, they were in the ihram. And Allah sees all of this, and as we had mentioned many verses ago, there are multiple rewards, the thawab which Allah was giving to the believing community. Um, so, you know, this obviously um, dream of theirs to enter Mecca, as we have been going on, was... Uh, obviously a dream of theirs, right? It was a, not a dream in the sense of a, a, a vision, but that, that was their ultimate goal was to get to Mecca, right? Again, they've been se separated from the city for so many years. So now they are basically in the middle of the desert. And being in the middle of the desert with Rasulullah, uh, having to determine what is next steps, gives them a bit more opportunity to also reflect right, on now what are their next stages and what have they lost out on. And so in the next verse, as we will see from in verse 25, which I've had to break up into three portions, again to explain it, uh, Allah gives the Muslims at that time and all of us actually very important points of reflection. So Allah says, in the beginning, He says, هُمُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا وَصَدُّوكُمْ عَنِ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ وَالْحَدِيَ مَعْقُوفًا أَنْ يَبْلُغَ الْمَحِلَّةِ They, the polytheists of Mecca, are the ones that disbelieved, and they obstructed you, the Muslims, from approaching and entering Masjid al-Haram and also prevented your sacrificial animals from reaching their place of sacrifice in the outskirts of the city of Mecca in the region of Mina. Now for those who have not been for Hajj, obviously because in Umrah we don't do the, you know, we don't have the same rites as we do in the Hajj, but 
At the time of Hajj, you obviously take your sacrificial animal with you. For us, obviously, we can't take a camel or a goat from Canada. That's not possible. But if you lived in Mecca or the outskirts, there are different forms of Hajj to perform. And you would take your animal along with you on that journey. And obviously, the Hajj, it culminates on the 10th of Dhul Hijjah. That's when we begin the stoning of the Jamarat. You know, the night before, we'd go on the 9th, you go to Arafat. Then you walk from Arafat to Muzdalifah, Mash'ar al-Haram. You uh, are waiting there, you have your, picked up your pebbles, you go to Mina. From Mina, you go to the Jamarat, you stone the, the last of the Jamarat, you go back to Mina, you shave your head, you, you slaughter the animal, you come out of the Ihram, but there's still two more days of Hajj left. But the point is, is that there comes that area or that aspect of the sacrifice of the animal. And it's not done just anywhere, there's a separate area in Mina. And even till today, that's there, the Saudi government have an entire cordoned off area. And you know, we, most, most people who go for uh, Hajj nowadays would not do their own slaughtering. Uh, it's done by a government official, it's all streamlined and processed in a, in, in a very harmonious fashion, we can say. Um, but you would normally take your animal, you would sacrifice your animal yourself, you would divide the meat up according to the regulations shave your hair if it was your first hajj and then you'd come out of the ihram for and then you would still again have a couple of days so allah is reminding the muslims here that it's these people the polytheists of mecca who are who are disbelievers that they've obstructed not only the muslims from moving forward to mecca but allah says they've also prevented your animals from reaching the place of their sacrifice right so it's interesting that allah mentions that so he's giving prominence not only to the Muslims right, as, as human beings, but Allah is giving prominence even to these animals, right, because it's a part of the religion. Right? And one of the things that if you study the rules of Hajj for people who live near or around Mecca, and they take their sacrificial animal with them, one of the rules is that in order for the other people, the other Hujaj to know that that animal is your sacrifice, you have to put something around the neck of the animal. It could be a garland of flowers, it could be your, your sandals. You literally would take your champal, right? your chapel as you'd call it in Urdu probably, and you'd put it around the neck of the camel. And people would see that and they would recognize that that camel is for sacrifice. But then the, the scholars say, once you have designated that animal for sacrifice, you're not allowed to mistreat the animal. Now generally in Islam, we're not allowed to mistreat any animal. We shouldn't, if we have a cat as a pet, we can't be, you know, we can't hurt the pet. We have to feed it on time. We have to give it the rights of the animal. But when it comes to the Hajj, Allah says that that animal has now become a sha'air of Allah, a symbol of Allah. And you have to give even greater respect to that animal. So it's interesting that Allah gives that to us. He shows us the, the need to respect even the animals that we have in our custody, in our protection. And he singles them out by saying that they were, even, they were even prevented from going to where they would have been slaughtered. Right? Although they would be killed, they would lose their lives. But Allah still recognizes and gives that respect even to the animals that the hujaj would take. The second part of the verse, again if you look at the Arabic, it's very short. It's just maybe 12 or 15 words. Um, but the translation has to again explain what's going on. So Allah says in the Arabic, وَلَوْلَا رِجَالٌ مُؤْمِنُونَ وَنِسَاءٌ مُؤْمِنَاتٌ لَمْ تَعْلَمُوهُمْ أَن تَتَتَعُوهُمْ فَتُسِيبَكُمْ مِنْهُمْ مُؤَرَّةً 
And if it was not for the fact that there existed believing men and believing women in the city of Mecca, Even here this is interesting because Allah says Rijalun mu'minun wa nisa'ul mu'minat Nisa'un mu'minatun Even if he didn't have the word Rijal and nisa, it would have been clear because mu'minun is the masculine and mu'minat is the feminine But Allah added Rijal as an emphasis and he added nisa as an emphasis And if it was not for the fact that there existed believing men and believing women living in the city of Mecca they were not able to migrate to Medina, whom you did not know, as Allah says, Lam ta'lamuhum, then realize that if there were to be a war with the polytheists of Mecca, that you might trample them, the innocent Muslims, and there would befall you because of them dishonor without your knowledge, as they would have been killed. Thus, if they were not in Mecca, then you would have been permitted to enter the city. But we do not allow this so as to prevent your hands from being tainted with the blood of innocent believers that would have been killed. So what's going on here, brothers and sisters, is the Muslims leave Medina towards Umrah, they're prevented, the Mushrikeen are in Mecca. If the peace treaty had not been signed, what, and, and, and if the Meccans had attacked the Muslims, what would have happened is that the Muslims would have been forced to retaliate and go into the city of Mecca and wage a war in the city. So what Allah is saying here is that there were mu'min, there were rijalun mu'minun wa nisa'un mu'minat, men and women that were believers that were living in Mecca, but they were incognito. You didn't know who they are. They have maybe converted at some point. They couldn't leave to go to Medina because of various issues. So they're stuck in Mecca. Now you're stuck in Mecca as a believer, but they couldn't tell the others they were believers. So they're in a state of taqiyah. They're in a state of hiding their iman because if they proclaim Islam, they could be killed, they could be tortured or worse, be killed. So what they're doing is they're hiding their iman from the, from the mushrikeen. Allah says now, they're hiding their iman, right? They're Muslims in Makkah, but you don't know who they are. Maybe the Prophet might know through ilmul ghayb if Allah gives that to him. But definitely the companions around Rasulullah, they had no idea, oh, that this is a Muslim, that's a Muslim, that's a Muslim woman. Now imagine they were to go into Mecca and launch a war to respond and retaliate to the attack of the mushrikeen. As Allah says that you might trample them, you would kill the innocent Muslims. And then what happens is Allah says now you would basically be, this would be a dishonor for the Muslim community in general and, and the Prophet in, in particular. Because the mushrikeen can now use this as an excuse. You see that these Muslims of Mecca, of Medina are so are so uh, infatuated with war, they've even killed their own people to get power. right? Because they don't know who the Muslims are and who the non-Muslims are. So Allah tells them that it's actually a rahmah of Allah. right? All of this that's happening is a blessing from Allah. The peace treaty has to be signed so they don't begin a war, the Meccans don't begin the war, Muslims don't reciprocate and retaliate. Because if they retaliate, they'll go into Mecca. If they go into Mecca, they're going to launch a you know, a, a, a ground combat. They're going to kill people. They might end up killing people that are actually Muslims but can't express their Islam. If they were to kill most people who are Muslims, then the polytheists will say, again, as I said, that they're going to use that as an excuse against the Muslim community. So all of this becomes a rahmah, a mercy from Allah. Having the prevention of Umrah is a rahmah from Allah. 
having the peace treaty is a rahmah of Allah. Them having to go back home to Medina is a mercy from Allah. The third part of the verse, and then we'll move on as we conclude, is where Allah says, لِيُدْخِلَ اللَّهُ فِي رَحْمَتِهِ مَنْ يَشَاءُ لَوْ تَزَيَّلُوا لَعَذَبْنَا الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنْهُمْ عَذَابًا عَلِيمًا Thus the fact that Allah prevented any war to break out at that time was so that Allah might admit to His mercy whom He willed. Most importantly, the believing men and women that were in Mecca and could not escape and were incognito in society. If they, this group of Muslims, had been apart from them, meaning if there was a clear demarcation between the Muslims that were in Mecca that were hiding their faith and the mushrikeen, the polytheists of Mecca, Allah says that we would have punished those who disbelieved among them with a painful punishment. Right, so the one takeaway point here, brothers and sisters, is that this, everything that we're seeing up until the Treaty of Hudaybiyah is a rahmah, that this is rahmah min Allah. So that Allah, So that Allah can allow the believers, the companions to enter into rahmah of Allah. All of this is being played out on the scene of Hudaybiyah. And as Allah says that, you know, that uh, if, there was a, if there was a clear separation, Muslims were here in Mecca, the non-believers were here, then the Muslims could easily identify who was who, and if they had to go to war, then they could obviously go to war and fight against these, be these people. I'm going to conclude uh, in the next minutes or so, 10 minutes, with about six points that we can reflect upon up until where we've, received, where we've reached in this chapter, and especially these last two verses for tonight. So point number one to reflect upon, brothers and sisters, is that despite their disbelief and the stubbornness, the Meccan polytheists were forced to make peace with the Muslims. Right. They, up until this verse, up until the, 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 the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, the sixth year after the Hijra, these polytheists, they did not consider the, the, the Rasul, Rasulullah, and the people, of the, the Muslims that went with him, they didn't even consider them to be worthy of talking to. Right? They just saw them and they would kill them. They would w w fight against them. But this peace treaty made them recognize and give... Um, show them that, you know, that they have to recognize the Muslims as a party that is rightfully in the Arabian Peninsula. They're not just some fringe group on the outskirts. They're not just some, you know, deviant group. No, they recognize them as a force to be reckoned with. You see this in the world today, right? Where do you see countries that might even be at odds with, with sanctions against the other country for years and years? But eventually they have to come to the table of negotiation and negotiate terms. And when that happens, that means that that other government has to recognize the, the legitimacy and the authenticity of that other government. Even though they might label them a terrorist entity, as we see in the world today with some of the so-called superpowers, they've labeled some Muslim countries in the Middle East and certain groups as these terrorists and, you know, a part of the axis of evil and they use all of this you know terminology but the fact that they have to sit at the negotiating table and discuss terms of peace and agreement shows that they have to recognize that those people are forces to be reckoned with whether they like it or not so this is one thing we see that the meccans had to submit and had to back down from their very stubborn attitude that they had against the rasulullah and the muslim community 
Point number two that we have to reflect upon, brothers and sisters, is that we must be in a position to explain the philosophy of our religion to believers as to why we do what we do. Right? It might take a few months or years to understand, but we have to always be in a position to explain why we're doing certain things. We see this now, right, that the Prophet is now being told by Allah that one of the reasons why the peace treaty had to be signed is because had you waged a war with the Meccans, you'd have went into Mecca and you'd have killed innocent Muslims. So Allah showing us the wisdom, the philosophy behind why all of this had to play out. Now obviously Allah has unlimited knowledge, right? He's not limited in what He knows. So He sees the big picture, so to speak. We might not be in that position. But as believers, we need to get to a level as much as we can, where we can understand our religion, and we can give explanation to people. Some of the things in our religion have been explained in the Quran, in the Hadith, why certain aspects of our religion are there. Other things are not there. Right? Where we have explanations, we should be able to give those to both believers and also non-believers, and also for ourselves to rest at ease. You know, many times people will ask, um, you know, why is it that we see that Amir al-Mu'mineen for 25 years, he keeps quiet, so to speak. He doesn't launch a revolution against the first three Khalifa. Why is it that with Imam Hassan salam he does a peace treaty with Muawiyah? Why is it then, when we look at those two Imams, the first Imams, and we compare that to Sayyidu Shuhada, that he doesn't launch a peace treaty with Yazid, Lanatullah Alayh? Why? Right? And we have to be able to study the, the circumstances behind the first two Imams and the politics of the early Banu Umayyah, the politics of the likes of the uh, political tricks and the machinations of, of the first three Khulafa of Muawiyah, to recognize that Peace was, or peace was the only way to prevent the complete and utter destruction of Islam at that time. But when Sayyidu Shuhada comes on the scene, and you have a, a cursed, wicked man like Yazid that is engaged in alcoholism, he openly engages in bestiality, he, uh, he taunts the Qur'an, he makes fun of Rasulullah, nothing that his father had done, at least in open, but when he does all of these things, Sayyidah Shuhada can't sit still and just allow Yazid to continue in his ways to destroy Islam. So he has to launch the movement that he did. Okay, so we have to learn, brothers and sisters, these main important aspects of religion, why they happen, so that we can explain it to others if need be, but also so we ourselves are comfortable in our skin. We know why we are on this path of following Muhammad and Ali Muhammad alayhum as-salatu as-salam. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. Point number three is that we always have to look at the big picture and recognize that our actions are done with a long-term long -term goal in view. Right? That's not only in our personal lives, right? Many of you young men and women, when you're in high school, you might have a guidance counselor They'll see how you're doing in school and they might suggest possible areas where you can go into university. Because they're looking at the long-term goal of where, you, where they think you should be in the future. Or maybe your parents will say, you know what, you're good in this, you're good in that, why don't you go to university and study X, Y, and Z? Right? Because your parents want you the best for you for the future. Your parents, because they're older, they've seen more, they know more than you for the most part. 
They are looking at the big picture. What's going to happen in the future? Where should my children be in terms of education? So we also have to look at that, brothers and sisters, in our community building. Right? We have to look at the big picture. Where will we be in 5, 10, 20 years? It's not enough just to say, okay, you know what? We're in the month of Ramadan right now. Muharram is coming in three months. Let's plan what the Muharram program will be. No, that's important. But it's trivial compared to the big picture. Right? Rasulullah was not looking, okay, we can't go to Umrah. We're upset now. No, he was saying, what's going to happen to the future of Islam? In the short term, the medium term, and the long term goals. Right? So as communities and community leaders, we can't just be content with, okay, we're going to set the, uh, you know, the, the food schedule for Ramadan this year, or we're going to set you know, the, the Muharram program this year, and then we'll plan you know, for next year, uh, when we come to the, a month before the program. No, we have to set two, five, ten year plans from now. Right? We have to say that <coughs> in five years, we want this community to be at a particular level. Even if we don't get to it, that's fine. But at least if we have the plan, we can begin the steps. So that way, every time a new committee comes in, they can build upon that plan and they can continue to move the community forward. Right? We can't be just very you know, shallow thinking about, again, what's for t dinner today, what's for tomorrow, what's next week's plan. No, we have to say, what are we looking for for the long-term growth of our community? Right? Where do we want to be? Where do we want our, our youth to be? Where do we want to see ourselves in 20 years? Again, that is what we learn from the Qur'an and that is what we have to implement from the ayat of the Qur'an. Point number four is that we see that harming a Muslim, whether it be physically, obviously, or even in other ways, such as through our hurtful words, is even out of ignorance if we do that, it has a weighty responsibility and consequence. Allah tells us, had the Muslims gone into Mecca, they would have unintentionally killed and trampled upon fellow Muslims. But we have to ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, how many times do we trample on the emotions of other Muslims? How many times do we make fun of other people? How many times do we maybe not physically kill or attack a believer? But how many times do we insult a fellow believer? Sometimes in the center, we might have a verbal altercation. Maybe it might come to a, a physical even attack. But if not that, we sometimes insult others to their face and we don't think anything about it. But Allah is showing us that you know, whether you harm a believer uh, physically or in other ways, there are repercussions that we have to pay. If not today, then in the world to come, most definitely. Point five is that leaders of the Muslim community, whether it be in a country or an organization, they have to consider all possible outcomes of whatever they decide to do before they carry it out. When an executive committee in, a, in an organization or there's a company, you have your CEOs and all your different officers, right? the CFOs and the chief technology officers and so on and so forth, before they make any decision, they don't just jump into it. Right? They have to meet, they have to discuss, they have to look at all the pros and cons, they look at everything from every aspect and then they make a decision because they need to recognize what are the possible ramifications for doing something. Are you going to do something or say something on the mic and insult a segment of the community? Are you going to do something and then alienate a complete demographic of your membership? 
that will never maybe come back to the center again because you've insulted them or, or made a comment about them. So we have to be very careful, brothers, especially the leaders of our communities or no, and our nonprofit organizations that they are thinking before they doing anything. And we have this saying in English, think before you speak. Amir al-Mu'mineen, before we had that saying, he told us that the, the, the person of intellect is one who is thinking before the tongue moves. So even Amir al-Mu'mineen had this same guidance for us. And last but not least is that in living Islam anywhere in the world, we must be careful on what we do and we say, and we can never give the enemies or opponents of Islam an excuse to point fingers at us or criticize us. You know, we see this unfortunately in the Muslim world, where Muslims say redundant, ridiculous things. They do things which then you know, impact us. You know, there's so many things that I don't even want to get into it because I'll probably end up stepping on people's toes as I've already done this month of Ramadan by saying too much. So I'll keep my mouth shut. Um, but we have to be careful that we don't say the wrong thing, right? Because again, what, what did the Prophet do? He knew that if he went into Mecca, he may kill innocent Muslims, but that would give the non-Muslims a reason to talk about the Muslims in a bad way. Right? Unfortunately, many of our so-called Muslim leaders in the Muslim countries, they don't have this basira, this insight. They just do whatever they want, they say what they say, and then they pay the price, and we also pay the price for their foolishness. So we have to recognize, brothers and sisters, that we need to be careful of what we say and do as believers.